Hey, Dockalos. It's a little noisier than usual because I just landed at LAX and I'm on my way to, to get to my ride, which is going to take me into Santa Monica because if you heard our last Shorties episode, then you know that I got invited to Podcast Illuminati. Oh, I should say that this is the Documenteers Podcast, the greatest podcast about documentaries in the universe. And I'm your host, Bob Shaman. Each week, myself and a documentary enthusiast discuss and judge a different documentary, and it's all in good fun, usually. But this month, the month of June, we are doing a little experiment. Angela will be hosting all month long to celebrate LGBTQ-themed docs. June, of course, is the month where Pride occurs. Admittedly, it feels weird not to have main hosting duties for a while. I'm having to let go of my input in many ways. I thought it'd be more like a vacation, but it kind of feels daunting. Mostly Angela this month, though I did pre-record some shorties episodes with a kill. So you'll hear, hear me up front for those episodes. But kicking off our Pride Month, Angela breaches some serious subject matter with a special guest, her brother Brian. LGBTQ docs can be intense due to a long history of injustice towards queer culture, and the doc in this episode discusses a cornerstone in the history of that injustice. Angela and Brian tackle Michelle Yasui's portrait of her old friend, and Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. Yes, that Matt Shepard, Matthew Shepard, who was beaten to death in Laramie, Wyoming, has sparked a conversation that should have been spoken generations ago. This one is a heavy one. It's personal in so many ways. A more organic documenteers episode that's almost reminiscent of the early days of the show, but with better microphones. Gotta love airport sushi. Do they have a Cinnabon here? I have a rule. I only eat Cinnabon in airports, and I can totally go for that shit right now. So next week, I think, it's going to be Angela and Akil discussing the film Mala Mala by Antonio Santini and Dan Sickles. And it's about the Puerto Rican transgender experience. I haven't watched it as of this recording. I plan on it. I bet it will be sad. I recommend I recommended finding at least one more upbeat doc. But I don't know how that, sh- that will pan out. Shit's probably going to get real this month. Is all I'm saying. But Akil and Angela will probably make a good show of it, so listen for Mala Mala next week on The Documenteers. Not much in the way of pre-show credits, like I said. This episode is going to be pretty organic. I think we play a clip from the movie Twilight in it, but I should say that Angela confuses the name of Matt's friend Jason Marsden with the name James Marsden, who is the actor that played Cyclops in those X-Men movies. And the lady from Third Rock from the Sun... Her name was Kristen Johnston, not Kristen Stewart. And that's where Twilight comes in. I remember now. I did bank this one before I left Nashville. I'm pretty excited. I mentioned earlier that I'm on my way to the podcast Illuminati. It's an enclave in Santa Monica. I got this invitation in the mail and had all these signatures on it. Like Mark Marin and Sarah Koenig and Terry Gross and Tony... McElroy, who's one of the lesser-known McElroy brothers, but apparently wields a lot of power in the podcasting community. I'm looking forward to an experience that is going to take the documenteers to the next level and is well worth draining my savings account for. Look out, Joe Rogan. Look out, Ira Glass. Look out, Shit Town. Look out, Guys We Fucked. Look out, Dr. Death. Look out, Karen Kilgariff. Look out, Georgia Hardstark. Look out, Ted Talks. Look out, Dave Ramsey. Look out, The Moth. Look out, Malcolm Gladwell, you piece of shit. Look out, Paul Shear. Yeah, it's showtime, baby. I'm gonna catch this whip. Yeah, I said whip. That means car. That's just how I West Coast vibe, baby. Documenteerspodcast.com. Give five stars in a review if you like this shit. And keep on the fuck docking. Oh, shit, they do got a set up on. Hell yeah, I'm gonna fuck it. Oh. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. My name's Michelle Husway, and Matt Shepard was a friend of mine. Matt was the type of friend I thought I would know my whole life. 
but on October 12, 1998, we lost him forever, and the Matt I knew became Matthew Shepard to the world. Everybody, guess what? It's your favorite host, Angela, here for the whole month of June. I don't know what order these episodes are going to come out in. So this could be the first week of June or the fourth week of June. Bobby is still in control of some things, like the order in which things get posted. But I have picked all the documentaries this month and specifically asked certain people to be on this podcast with me. And I am very, very, very happy to be doing a podcast with one of my favorite people in the entire world, <laughs> my brother, who you may have heard of us mentioned on the podcast, Brian. Hi, everybody. It's Brian. Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> I'm just glad you're here. Brian is my brother. We've been brother and sister All our whole lives. lives. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, we, as you guys know, Brian lives at the Shamco Studios with me and Bobby. This is his first time on the podcast, so I'm really, really glad to watch this documentary and be sharing this with you. Yeah, it's very important. We are talking today about Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine, a documentary by director Michelle Hosway, which came out in... 2015. 2015. I thought there was another documentary about Matthew Shepard. I'm not sure. This is the one that kept coming up every time we looked it up, and this was done much later this is approached in a different way because michelle hosway is friends with matthew shepherd yeah everybody in it has known him you know it's not the media though there is people from the media in it but it's yeah. people who became part of this story it, it's it's not a third person i mean they're they're second person with all of this yeah this is in no way this is not an investigative podcast looking into what happened you may not know what happened, if especially if you're younger or have not been exposed to this story yet, because this happened in 1998. Yep. I graduated high school in 1998. And I started high school in 98. So this was a pretty big thing at the time for our generation. Oh. For those of you who don't know, we will go through the whole story, but Matt Shepard was brutally murdered yeah. for being gay. This documentary was a chance for his friends to share with the world who he really was so that we all know him better. I mean, because everybody knows the story, or at least if you know the story, you know how he died and you know, might know what happened afterward, but you don't know what life he led before that. I mean, the, the whole point is uh, of this documentary is to make sure that everybody gets to know Matt. There is a huge impact on society as a whole from what happened to Matthew Shepard. And it's just, it's, it's interesting because I knew a lot about the story going into watching this. I, I didn't, you know, know about the family as much. And I really appreciated a, a lot of the things that Michelle touches on. They touch on the fact that this happened in October, 1998 that these two men, Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney, murdered Matthew Shepard. They show a little bit about the impact at the time. There was a time cover about it. There was Bill Clinton talking. That's us. I mean, the 90s, oh, that, I mean, that was our life, you know, up until we, that was our formative years. Yeah. Uh, these are the things that uh, that shaped the world that we grew up in. Absolutely. And this is another one like Lorena that we talked about, mm -hmm. that there was so much more to the story than a lot of people knew at the time. You sort of knew the big headlines. You were enraged by what was happening. But I personally didn't know all these details. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that we're now sort of going back and re-examining these situations, understanding the impact they did have, not just on us, but continue to have. So it gets into talking about Matt's life from childhood. Michelle is in this documentary a lot. For those of us who knew him, Matt's story will never grow old because the pain of losing him is still fresh, like it happened yesterday. And the hate that killed him is still here today. Yeah, I mean, she she's directing it, and but she's also interviewing everybody. 
she might not have known him the longest, but I'm pretty sure he might have even considered her his best friend. I mean, they, they seemed so close. Sometimes we do not like it when directors are part of a documentary film, right. but when it works is in a documentary like this, when the person has a personal connection. And Michelle really does. I never felt like she was inserting herself. It's part of it. And that's also why she, I believe she got people to open up in the way that they do is because of who she is. They start reading Matt Shepard's journals and stories and looking at pictures of him from when he was a kid. They talk to his mom and his father, his little brother. How, what was their age difference? Let's see. If Matt was 21 when he passed and a senior in high school was Logan. So they would have only been, you know, like three, Maybe four, four years, years apart. apart. Like you and bus. I. Yeah. Yeah. Just like us. Logan is not in this documentary or at least not announced. Yes, you do see him in the documentary. He's not an interviewee. Right. The date is the 26th of March. My brother should be coming home tomorrow. Look, there's my brother. He's awesome. Awesome. Nice, nice. I actually uh, love the part where his parents mentioned that he wrote poems to his neighbors and put them in their mailboxes. Oh, yeah. When he was told that he couldn't do that without a stamp, he started putting pretty rocks in their mailboxes. <laughs> I'm just like, that's such a, a perfect little kid thing to do. But it just shows that, you know, he wanted everybody to know that he was that he was thinking about them and, yeah. and he wanted them to have something special from him, which is is incredibly unique and, and giving because not everybody would necessarily do that. Every gay man has a relationship with his parents that is incredibly different. The fact that his mom, like most moms, knew from an early age. Mm -hmm. She knew, apparently, uh, because his favorite Halloween costume as a kid was <laughs> Dolly Parton. Uh, when he was eight years old, I think she said. Eight years old was the first time, but she said he was Dolly many times. Many times. <laughs> many times. And that he didn't always wait for Halloween to get that no, costume out. No, did not out. wait for Halloween. <laughs> I wish that we'd seen a photo of that. We didn't that get to been see great. a photo of, of. But see, that doesn't seem like the type of thing that two parents in Wyoming would take photos of. But it was Halloween. Even if, no, even <laughs> if they actually love and support their son. They're not necessarily going to take pictures of him dressed as a woman. You have taken <laughs> pictures <laughs> of many men dressed like women, as have I, because drag queens are awesome. Uh, I love men dressed like women. Not saying he was a drag queen, because, you know, Halloween is Halloween. That's definitely a, a formative holiday for a lot of gay men to express themselves, even when they're young. Yeah, and even if you have no desire to be a drag queen or you're not someone who is transgender or even a cross-dresser, dressing in the opposite gender can sometimes help you express yourself and help you kind of tap into parts of yourself that might not be as easily accessible. It's freeing. It's freeing to not be yourself, be somebody new. And there's nothing newer than the completely opposite sex, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that that was probably the beginnings of his loving theater yes because he he did act a lot like a lot of the friends that we talked to later in this knew him because they did theater together they do talk to his dad shows us a bunny named oscar oscar the bunny that kind of comes back into the story a few different times and oscar was his favorite favorite stuffed animal matt had a stuffed bunny oscar yeah so he was his best buddy it has now become one of his father's prized possessions. Absolutely. Talking to his mom and dad, it was so lovely to see how much they love him. They talked to a couple of his friends from childhood. He did plays, but he was also like a little entrepreneur. Like he had, I can't say that word, entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. The, they all hung out at the shepherd's house. He was the leader of their group. He's the smallest one in their group and the leader of the group. I mean, he, he was only five foot two mm -hmm. at the age of 21. That's that's short. That's shorter than you. That is shorter than me. And I'm short, you guys. It took a big personality to be such a tiny person to be the leader of this group. And he was. We met his guidance counselor who said that. I think I was probably the first person he ever came out to. I just asked him, you know, what would it mean if that's what you found out? You really are gay. Because Walt actually asked Matt. It wasn't a are you gay, but it was like. If you were gay, what would that mean? And Matt kind of broke down. 
it was so obvious that he had thought about that for a long, long, long time and was so afraid of it. He, did, he just started crying, and it was like he said my family would reject me. At that point in high school, Matt hadn't come out to his family. No. He hadn't come out to his friends. Walt knew. Walt was a man who, he mentions having children, so I assume that he had had like a family and came out later in his life. His fears and experiences were enough of what I had grown up with that I could understand what he was talking about. That's the, that's the assumption for sure, because he never once actually says, I am gay in it. He does say that the hardest person for him to come out to was his children. The closer you get somebody, the harder it gets to tell them. I mean, for, for me, the hardest people to tell was my kids. <laughs> Think about losing your own kids. From what he said in his life. And he became a lifelong friend. So what happened in 1993? Um, well, his dad got a job in Saudi Arabia in Duran, and they moved the whole family. Um, but yeah, after ninth grade, Matt uh, got sent to a boarding school in Lugano, Switzerland. The American school at the University of Switzerland, TASIS, is what they abbreviated it. The reason he was in Switzerland is because his parents were in Saudi Arabia because his father was working for a oil company, but there was no school close to them. So they sent him to Switzerland and, and there no American school because that's the whole thing. And there were other kids. The other kids at the school were in the same sort of position that he was in. One of the girls, he ended up, they sort of didn't hit it off at first, yeah, but they, they found like out at all. their families live next to each yeah, other. Their parents live next to each other in Duran. Yeah, yeah. And so they ended up being best friends. Yeah. <laughs> and Michelle was there. I can't remember where her family was, but all these kids from different cultures and different socioeconomic backgrounds and everything kind of came together. In the neutral territory of Switzerland. They had a teacher named Cynthia there who sort of took on kind of a second mother to Matt. And she's also throughout this. She said that for the rest of his life, after they became close, she talked to him every few days. All the way up until he passed. She spoke to him the day, the day that he of. was attacked. Yeah. She seemed like a very lovely woman. I could just like instinct could see why you'd be drawn to her. Xenia is the one whose parents live next to him. Cynthia was the teacher. Nikki was a friend. Julie and Rich were there. There were so many people who loved him so much and reconnected for this documentary to talk oh. about him who were from that same group. Well, I'm sure Michelle's kept in contact with all of them over the years, too. Oh, it yeah. It's sort of easy to track. I mean, they voted him the most, the friendliest. Was in it his friendliest? Class. I wrote most popular, but I wasn't sure if that was right. So, well, friendliest. I'm surprised you didn't write most friendliest. Most friendliest. <laughs> they also talk so much about how he wanted to be an actor. Michelle mentions also when she's talking about him at this time that he actually never came out to her. Right. He never once came out to any one of his friends except for his girlfriend. Later, the girl who was his girlfriend, he, he tells her. Yeah. But it's kind of after all this is over. Once he sort of started becoming more comfortable with himself. Mm -hmm. They talk about a couple of trips that they went on when they were at school. They went to Japan. You went to Japan. Uh-huh. But he got to go to Kyoto. I didn't get to go to Kyoto. Where did you go? Tokyo. Um, uh. And we spent a night in Nara. And then I actually went to school in Suru. That's right. I forgot yeah. you. It was like a month, right? Were you there two weeks, month? It's about two weeks. That's so cool. Wish it would have been a month. There was so much real footage and it's just real raw family footage of just home videos, uh, pictures, and, and it, it was so personal. Yeah, that was one of the best things about this. Again, no need to, but there were no reenactments. Right. There was this beautiful home video. Beautiful is maybe not the right word, but touching where his dad's just following him around, yeah. taking images In of Rome. him. And who is he hanging out? <gasps> Star. It's gotta be somebody famous. It is. It's a world-renowned actor. Talking about how he's a world traveler now because he's been all but over the place. Who is that movie star sitting on that, <laughs> that bench or pedestal or whatever he happened to be moving to? There's our world-famous traveler again. See him everywhere. Shaky dad cam, you know, it's it was pretty great. It was very sweet. It reminded me of our dad. <laughs> yeah. You know, just being like, hey, look at you, big man. And you being like, dad, okay, fine. I'm the runaway and hide from dad when he has a camera <laughs> kind of There person. is a very sweet one also that's a little earlier on where his little brother comes in with a video camera oh and goodness. wants to get him on camera. Maybe you should change the channel, Matt. Matt? <laughs> See, there's my brother. 
As you mentioned uh, that he went to Japan, mm -hmm. uh, the school traveled uh, or arranged uh, for them to travel all around Europe and mm -hmm. some parts of Asia. The kids really wanted to go to Africa, someplace that, they, that the school hadn't really allowed anybody to go before. So they actually chose Marrakesh uh, in Morocco. Yeah, they didn't want them to go prior to that. And there were some concerns about safety. Yes, absolutely. Especially at that time. So... We talked to his friend Kate, who was on that trip in Morocco, and there was a small group of them that all went together, and, you know, they'd been kind of going around the town, but uh, one night, she heard a knock at her door, and it was 2 a.m., and it was Matt, and he was screaming, it's Matt, let me in, and she just heard this, like, terrible scream, and she opened the door, and he ran in, and she he didn't have a shirt on, and he didn't have any shoes on, and she just held him. He just like fell in and he just kept screaming. He was walking back to the hotel and was pulled into an alley with six men who robbed him and raped him. Then he came back. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is. He didn't want her to tell anyone. She actually told Michelle on that trip because I think that she needed someone to tell. But she made Michelle swear that she would not tell anyone ever. And so Matt actually never knew that Michelle knew about this. Right. And this was a huge thing in his life. This kind of changed his perspective, I feel like, on a lot of things. They said uh, that. They said he wasn't the same person. Before that, he was very, very outgoing. They said he gave up on acting. He was no longer outgoing. He ended up deciding to, to leave Tassis mm -hmm. and to go back to his home to, to see his family. His mom said that he physically changed. He no longer stood up straight. And when he did go back to Tassis that one final time just to graduate, the difference in him was, I feel like, shocking to some of these friends. And Kate talked about how she feels a lot of guilt. There are times when I have guilt about our trip. But would his life have been different if we hadn't have gone to Morocco? And I think it would have been. The fear that I felt in Morocco. I wasn't the victim of the attack. I was only someone that was there. I think that he lived with that fear likely every day. And it's hard to function like that. I hate when people do that. I mean, there are so many, if this happened, then this wouldn't have happened situations. And I live in that space a lot. Me too. There's lots of unfortunate events that happen to a lot of people. No one's exempt from that. And I understand feeling a certain way because a bad thing happens, but it, it led this particular instance um, led to depression and decay in the way that he started feeling about himself. When Matt left school to return home to see his family, he never formally came out to his friends. It was later uh, when he actually decided that he wanted to go to college in Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, that he came out to his mom. Of course, mm -hmm. she was like, So what took you so long to tell me? And he said, How did you know before I knew? And I said, They, they tell me it's a mom thing. But he said, Don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. She told dad. She told dad. And that's one of those hard situations. That's one of those hard conversations where someone asks you a question or ask you not to tell someone something. And it's really not your place to either answer that question or tell that thing. But she told the dad because she was worried, not that the dad would not accept him, but that the dad might say something off or ignorant when right. he was told, not meaning to. Yeah, and see, that's when it's appropriate to, to tell secrets. Mm -hmm. I can understand a mom, a very protective mom, who's known this her whole life. Yeah. Just saying... I know my husband. I know my child. I want to make sure that we make it out of this as a family. Yeah. So if there's any heat coming off of dad, I'll take it mm -hmm. so that it's easier, you know, of, of a break for, for my child. And sure enough, he told dad. Dad was like, eh. Matt said, I'm gay. And dad said, 
okay, well, what's the important thing you need to tell me? Because I've got, I got stuff something to, else do. to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got something better to Which do. It was just his sort of <laughs> way of trying to make it. I feel like that was his way of trying to make it abundantly clear immediately that like, I'm cool. That's cool. What's the big problem? Yeah, is there problem? a problem? Because yeah. that's not a big problem to him. Like he said, he's like, I love my son no matter what. And in that moment, I was very grateful that Matt had that experience. Yes. Not everyone has that experience. And this was probably what, like 94, 95? I think so, yeah. I know it was in October of 95 is when he actually came out to his girlfriend. Nikki was his girlfriend. He texted her. And she kept the text. She did. And it was very sweet. And he's like, hey, I need to tell you something. I'm gay. And he said, hey, baby, I wanted to call you today. I've been so busy trying to organize my life. I miss you. Love, Matt. P.S. I have something to tell you, and I'm gay, and have been. I'm sorry. I couldn't tell you before. I wanted you to know, but I loved you so much I couldn't tell you. If I weren't, I would have wanted to spend the rest of my life with you. Hey, baby, I'm gay. Yeah, that's literally what it said, and that's pretty great. Which, I mean, you know, I feel like there's a lot of young men who, and and women too, who date a person of the opposite sex who really is just their best friend. Because feelings when you're young can be very confusing. Exactly why did he leave North Carolina and move out west? Is it just because he was missing home? But he didn't move back home. He actually moved to Denver. He moved to Denver, but you know, I think the reason he didn't move back home right away was because his family wasn't there. His family was still in Saudi Arabia, his parents and his brother. And so I feel like Denver to him was, I'm going back west, but it's a bigger city. Maybe there will be more for me there. I want to say her name was something like Martina. You got all the names of these friends. I didn't write her name down. I feel so bad about it. I blinked every time a name came on. But she seemed like, I know, (laughs) she seemed like a genuinely supportive, cool chick who was his friend in Denver, and she, but she talked about how he would swing from super outgoing, going out all the time, dating all kinds of people, to super depressed, never leaving his house. Rotten food. Yeah, she'd have to, she or other people would go over to check on him. That's a sign of pretty severe depression mm-hmm. when you are just shoving things down and ignoring things to that level. But then he would come out of it, but then it would happen again. The guidance counselor kind of comes in at that point and talks again about how he was still talking to Matt and how Matt would just take things very hard. He was just a very sensitive soul, and he always was. And so it was difficult for him to deal with it whenever he did run up against anyone being awful. The lady in the church. The lady in the church. He, He wanted some answers, and he wanted to go to church. And so there was a church right across from where he was living in Denver and he went in there and it takes a lot for some gay men to go into church. I'll tell you that. And when he did, he got some hate speech from this lady. And when you're already feeling down, the last thing you want is to go looking for help. And the person that you think might be able to help you just shoots you down even further. And so that really, that really broke him all over again. And he just felt lost. I feel in that time. I don't feel it. He was. He was lost. That's when he decided he wanted to go back to school again. He wanted to go back to college and finish. And he wanted to go home. So so, he enrolled in the University of Wyoming up in Laramie. Yep. And then he, and being there, he was close to his guidance counselor. He was a few towns over from where he had grown up. Then Casper. He had a little bit of a support system there. Going into it, two really great guys that they talked to right after this. One was James Marsden. He was the friend who worked at the Tribune. Mm -hmm. He was a gay man as well. And he talked about how they would go to parties together and talk about politics. Yes. And and they're the only two gay men that would talk about politics in the whole state. And so they became really close because they had these things in common Mm -hmm. that you just didn't find that much. But then we meet his friend at school, Jim. Jim. Big guy, Jim. Big guy, Jim. Uh, Jim said that the moment that Matt walked on the campus. Well, it's it's pretty unusual for us to have, or at least at the time, it was unusual for us to have, you know, brand new students showing up on campus and saying, I want to be involved with the gay group. And he's got such a big personality and such a tiny package. He called him up his pocket gay. Yeah, because this guy's <laughs> big. This guy's like. Easy six foot tall, 350. Oh, more than six. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because uh, little Michelle walking, be- and she's petite, <laughs> but walking beside him looked like a child. He did say that there were some 
programs that that club then put in place that were on Matt's suggestion, like mentoring new kids who came into school, whether they had questions about school or being gay or needed a friend. And so you kind of matched people up as they came in. He made Laramie a safe place and he felt like it was a safe place for him. Cynthia did say literally the day that he was attacked, he called her and talked about how happy and content he felt. And everyone felt that he was just, he was just on the path to finally figuring it all out, you know, Mm -hmm. being comfortable. So then we get to the day. Uh, He actually was attending a meeting at the LGBT group and he didn't want to go home. And so he said, I'm going to go out to the bar, fireside. Uh, He went out to fireside. He went there a lot. The bartender knew him. Bartender knew him. Didn't think it was weird that he was there alone because, I mean, there's only... 500,000 people in the state. So going to a bar alone is pretty easy to do. Then uh, Russell and Aaron come in. Russell Henderson, Aaron McKinney. Two dudes looking for a good time. And the bartender talks about how they bought a pitcher of beer. And when he brought it over, they paid for it with quarters and dimes. So these guys didn't have much money. He wasn't sure that there was even enough money to cover the pitcher of beer, but he didn't care to count it. Oh, yeah. And he also hoped they didn't pull any more money out to try to get a second. Yeah. That was the other part of it. (laughs) What we find out from the sheriff is that what they put together was Aaron, who was this kid who grew up in that town, apparently was a bit of a bad kid. The sheriff actually said that the sheriff's son told him at one point, this guy is not a good guy. I think he called him a bad seed. Yeah. And Russell was the guy that was with Aaron that night. And they are both completely to blame, but Russell was more of Aaron's lackey. Russell kind of followed Aaron around. Apparently, they were sitting in this bar and they see Matt drinking his beers, talking to the bartender. He appears to have some money. So they go to the bathroom and hatch a plan to uh, rob him. Well, they decide they're going to pretend to be gay to gain his trust and then rob him. Bar gets a little busier. People are talking. Matt's mingling. The bartender sees him talking to these guys, thinks it's maybe a little odd, but because he knew they didn't know each other beforehand, but... Matt was that kind of person that could draw people to him, so it's not really suspect. And then they left together, these three guys. They left together. Uh, Walt comes in and talks this time and says that it was actually his birthday that day. Matt canceled the plans to go hang out with the two of them. My impression was after the meeting, he canceled and went to the bar that could very well be but i don't know walt again this is another situation where walt started playing the what if i could have done something different game and it's such a hard i've been in that position you know i have i've beat myself up over what if i had just same said this or done this or been there and you just can't do anything about that after the fact but walt did say he was like what if i had insisted what if I said, no, you're not canceling on me. It's my fucking birthday. He no. didn't say fucking, but you know. He thought it. It's rough when you when you play that kind of game in your head. Once they left the bar, Aaron Russell and, of course, Matt. Uh, Russell was driving Aaron's truck while Aaron was beating up Matthew. He took his wallet, or rather, Matthew gave him his wallet. Willingly. Willingly. Yeah. Um, if this is what you want, fucking take it. They took him out to the middle of nowhere onto the prairie and there was absolutely no way to really drive up to where they went so that means they had to walk there because even the cop couldn't pull up that far mm-hmm. um and they tied him to a fence uh on his back i originally uh, did think that he was tied upright i did too i didn't know that he was laying down and and tied and like bound to the bottom of the post i didn't realize that either uh, if you think about it, that's actually a worse position because you can't get out of that with your arms tied behind your back mm-hmm. and the bottom of a post. Uh, at least if you had like one bar behind you, you could probably break free from that if you were able to. You could take it with you. If you had the strength. Um, if you had the strength yeah. to do it. But I don't even think that would have been the case. It was 18 blows with a 357 and four fractures to his skull. And the final blow was behind his right ear. And it just uh, it messed with his brainstem. Did it actually connect? They mentioned later that his brainstem is sort of the only thing keeping him alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Just but it was damaged. Function. It was damaged. They Where they hit him, if it had been a little bit harder, he might have died right away. Because it was such a bad, just such a bad beating. Um, 
they left him there and it took 18 hours for anyone to find him. 18 hours. They don't really say who told the police or how the police found out he was there. Now I know this. It's actually a cyclist riding Riding. their bicycle and spots what they think is a child. Right. They thought he was a 12 year old. Right. They thought the police originally thought that he was 12 years old because of just how small he was calls it into the police an officer shows up that that's when they they find him they interviewed that woman officer who was the first on the scene and was it reggie i can't remember what her name was i don't remember her name either at this point it started getting harder for me to take notes because i got a little upset you did (laughs) so you you actually took better notes than me during this part because i um kind of started crying a little bit because i just can't imagine um, or I guess maybe I can a little bit, and that's what's so awful is just the imagining of what this poor boy was going through. But when the police officer got there, she said that her sole goal was to try to, when she realized he was alive, was to try to communicate whatever way she could to him that she was with him and that she was going to do everything she could to make him okay. And he was uh, brought to the hospital, and he he was in a coma. It was a gruesome discovery at this fence. Late Wednesday afternoon, as the sun was setting, the lifeless, savagely beaten body of 21-year-old Matthew Shepard, a gay man, barely alive tonight, in a coma, brain damaged, and on life support. His parents were called in Saudi Arabia. Well, uh, his parents were called at 5 a.m. He was there for 18 hours, so he was there kind of through the night and then the next day. So I think he was maybe found in the evening. I don't know the time difference. Right. Between here and Saudi Arabia, but they did say that Matt always called them early. And so they thought it was him calling mm-hmm. when the phone rang. Yeah, the hospital called him, and he. And they said that he was in the hospital. They didn't give him a lot of details. They didn't give him a lot of details. He actually thought that Matt was in a car accident. Yeah, his dad was con- convinced it was a car accident. And then he was told by, who was he told? I believe it was one of their friends contacted them and said that Matt's story was all over the news. And the internet. And they were like, what are you talking about? And when they went online and and figured out what was going on, even before they got there, that's when dad pulled Logan aside and just tried to prepare his youngest son for the fact that his brother was probably going to die. Sorry. Okay. Um, (laughs) I'm... I know that he was in a coma, and I know that he was in a coma for six days. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly when his family did show up, but his family did make it to the hospital, you know, during during this window. I'm sure it was as soon as possible. Absolutely. I'm, um, I think they were there for, they were d- there for at least a few days because they, during this time, the guidance counselor was, he and his group of people were doing everything they could to get Matt's story out because they were afraid that, the Laramie police and newspapers were going to try to squash the story and try to make it about a robbery. Robbery versus hate crime. Police say robbery was the primary motive in the crime, but gay rights groups say Shepard's homosexuality may have been the motive and are pushing for a strengthening of hate crime laws. Parents got there, and then when the parents got there, they had to be there for a few days because, was it, I don't know how it works, the president of the hospital? The CEO of the hospital. Dean <laughs> of medicine at a learning yeah, college. I don't the know. The leader of the hospital became their spokesperson. And so he went out and talked to the press and he made it his point to be an advocate for them so that the parents got to spend as much time with their son and not have to deal with the bullshit of talking to news people as much as possible, which I thought was really lovely. And that man seemed to genuinely care about these people. Oh, yeah. During this time, they found the guys. Yeah, they arrested Russell and Aaron. And, and their girlfriends. Their two girlfriends, yeah. They thought that they had killed him. They did. They thought he was dead. Uh, they, they didn't know that he was still alive in a coma when Aaron was arrested. Lied. Uh, I mean, immediately lying about things. But then all of a sudden, had a change of heart and started confessing. Yeah, I I think that the way the sheriff said was that he made sure Aaron had like a good night's sleep and then reread him his Miranda rights. And at that point, all I can assume is that the reality of the situation set in and Aaron was like, yeah, I did it. And this is what happened. Because I'm sure by that point, he knew he wasn't getting away with anything. Oh, yeah. They knew what the fuck he did. Mm-hmm. They show this picture of all these letters 
in these bins of people riding into the hospital in support of them. And some of them were not in support of them. Some of them were very hateful. Again, the hospital kind of kept all that separate from the family so that they wouldn't be distracted by sort of all this outside stuff so they could spend time with him. While Matt was in the hospital on life support, uh, Dennis thought it would be a good idea, his dad, Dennis, thought it would be a good idea to, to go through and, and get things that were important that the doctor said to surround him with, with positivity and things that, you know, sort of might might jar him back and get some sort of response if it was possible. And so Dennis couldn't find Oscar, the bunny rabbit, anywhere. He was his best buddy. Mm-hmm. Looked everywhere. Um, he later realized that that might have been a good thing because it was meant for him to keep a special, special token. October the 11th, Judy called Walt, said, can you go visit him in, in, in the ICU? Right. Walt walked in and he said his goodbyes and Matt died at 12.53 a.m. on October the 12th, yep. 1998. I was a freshman in high school. You were a freshman, freshman in college. college. The outpouring of support and also hate mm-hmm. for this young man and what happened to him was sort of unprecedented at that point because, you know, they talk about how you could no longer pretend that this kind of stuff doesn't happen to your children because you look at Matt and he could be your child. It was even said in there, is this going to be the moment that makes everybody realize what they're doing? Uh, the hom- homophobes, lawmakers, anybody who who hasn't really spoken out on this issue, mm-hmm. they're going to talk about it now. Bill Clinton, as you said, <laughs> again makes, shows up. makes every every little appearance. He said something that really great, hate and prejudice are not American values. It's a good thing for anybody to say, but (laughs) it is funny about Bill Clinton talking about values. (laughs) (laughs) And he is the father of don't ask, don't tell. So that's also not a good thing that he did. But he did publicly speak out about how we cannot hate people because they're not like us. We also see just vigils and rallies all over the place. These folks coming out to speak about how they feel about it. People who were very popular in culture at the time. Uh, what's the lady's name? Kristen from Third Rock from the Sun. Kristen Stewart. You know what you are. Say it out loud. No, that's no, that's, that's Twilight. <laughs> that's the girl. Sorry, Kristen Stewart. Vampire. I don't know you. I know what you look like. I can't think of it. Also, Ellen DeGeneres. (laughs) I know who Ellen is. Matt was someone that all you have to do is look at a tiny sliver of anything about him and just know that you would have wanted to also be his friend. Like, he was a great person. And that's what this documentary is showing us. Matt Shepard was a friend of theirs and could very well have been a friend of mine. Absolutely. Walt comes on at this point also and talks about how, you know, Matt was not the only kid that this was happening to at the time. We know this. Like, there's still hate crime, horrible things happening all the time. They did ask that Dennis do a press conference the day of the funeral. Mm -hmm. The parents had not really spoken out until this point, and Dennis prepared a statement and talked. We should try to remember that because Matt's last few minutes of consciousness on earth may have been hell. His family and friends want more than ever to say their farewells to him in a peaceful, dignified, and loving manner. Mom did not say anything. They had to outfit Dennis with a bulletproof vest because there were so many protesters. They wanted to make sure that he was safe. And all Judy said was, they're just here to see us cry. After Matt's funeral, they talk about the trial of Aaron McKinney. Russell Henderson had pled guilty. He was 22 at the time, and he was already serving life in prison because he had pled guilty. Aaron McKinney was 23, and he was on trial. And he was charged with uh, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, and first-degree murder, and they were seeking the death penalty. His defense was trying to use a, quote, gay panic defense, and the judge threw it out. Well, first off, they've openly admitted that they were pretending to be gay. So any advances by Matthew at that point would have very well been justified. So that didn't even make any sense. Right. And yeah, because what they were trying to say was that they did plan on only robbing him. But when he touched them, they became enraged. 
now, and it, murdered him. It's not touched in here, but one of the other things that they've thrown out was that he had drugs and they were hoping to get drugs from him. Oh. That they actually were going to follow him home and, and take his drugs. Huh. And that was the whole purpose. They don't mention the drugs at all in this. And that is actually a prevalent part of the story that sort of gets pushed down. Interesting. I didn't know. I didn't remember that part. It's one of the many defenses. The priest, actually, that she interviewed did say something about it. Uh, one of his quotes to Michelle was that he that the boys sort of spurred up all these things that involved drugs and, and, and money. Basically, the priest equivalent of bullshit. Priest went to see Aaron and Aaron tried to make all these excuses that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment where... The priest actually made Michelle cry. Did I say something bad? I would never want to hurt you. (laughs) No, you didn't. Not at all. Is this what you kind of... I'm sorry. Oh, no, I didn't expect this at all. I was just... No, it's all right. You know, like, you know him and you're saying that they're equal in God's eyes. No. You just get so angry because... Sure. Sure. And I thought it was a really important moment because she said, do you think that these guys have good in their hearts? And he said, I'm super paraphrasing. Not everyone is just one thing. And he's sure that they do have some good in their hearts. And he basically said that, you know, Matt is their brother. And so are these two guys. And Michelle lost it a little bit. She did. And so did I. She never thought about that. All she wanted to do was see them for what they were, Mm -hmm. which was murderers. She doesn't want to think about them having families. She doesn't want to think about how they feel because they murdered her friend. It's very black and white for her. He said there are a lot of risks um, being friends with someone, and you're feeling that now. And she says, you know, I wish that I could have some kind of healing. I wish I could not feel angry. I wish we could heal from this. And he says to her, I hope you never stop being angry. I hope you never lose being angry at this. He said, remind the world to be angry. We must not ever heal from that. And that's what this movie is doing. It's reminding us, hey, this thing happened. Don't fucking forget about it. And you should still be mad and you still have to fight. Now, I'm not a religious person, but I will say that the priest is my favorite person in this entire thing. He is is a great human being, at least from what I've gathered, the brief time that we see him. There's a special kind of religious person who... Gets it. Gets it, but also, you know, we did another documentary about guys on death row. And they talked to a priest in that one as well. And he was the person who goes and talks to you before you die. Kind of does almost counseling if they want it. You know, like he'll visit and talk to them. And I I think that when you're someone who deals with people who are facing death, you get a very different perspective on the essence of a person. And there's a very fine line between you are a human and you deserve human rights And not forgetting what you did that was so terrible. And that's what makes Judy so great. His mama? His mom. Judy Shepard. But when Aaron McKinney was found guilty, Judy said that she didn't want the death penalty. Both of the parents were trying to make sure that he only got life in prison. Yeah. They didn't want it to just be a cycle. They didn't want him to die because their son died. They wanted him to live and remember That's the right kind of punishment is remembering. I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't believe that anyone should kill anyone. I do believe that if you do something like this, you should spend life in prison. And And, your life should not be good. And life in prison is okay if... Now I'm going to go on a tirade. (laughs) They always say there's overcrowding in prisons. And that's true. My whole thing is if the right people were in prison, it wouldn't be overcrowded. Well, yeah, I have a lot of strong feelings about overcrowding in prisons as well, because if only the people who were there who really committed heinous crimes, our overcrowding in prisons issue is because of people who are there for nonviolent crimes. Exactly. And that is a huge fucking problem in this country. There are people who are sitting in jail right now for fucking carrying marijuana when it's legal in a bunch of states. Drug crime is nonviolent crime. 
you should do something for those crimes, but you shouldn't be put in jail for 20 years. There are alternatives. Yes. There we know are, there are alternatives. I know that there are alternatives to, to jail. And there should be more programs to help people, to either rehabilitate people, to help people get back into society. And there are programs like that, and they are great. There are not enough of them. Sorry, we went on that like yeah, I, prison reform tirade, but it's important. I mean, it comes up every time we talk about life sentences and death penalties and just prison in general and sentencing. But he didn't get the death penalty because they took it off the table and they did a deal. And so he got two life sentences. The biggest thing to me is that if you do something like this, you should get life without parole. Like there should never be a chance of you getting out. And that's what he got. There's a clip of his father reading the statement that he made in court. In a dramatic twist, Matthew Shepard's own parents today do all they can to save the life of the man who killed their son. Today accepting a deal from the lawyers for Aaron McKinney, urging prosecutors not to seek the death penalty. Shepard's father says the family decided to show mercy that the time has come for healing after their son's murder. Aaron apparently got up and said that he was very, very sorry and he would be sorry for the rest of his life for what he did. Then the dad got up. The dad got up and read his statement, and so they show him reading that, and it's, it's very lovely. Mr. McKinney, I am going to grant you life, as hard as that is for me to do, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, or the 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Mr. McKinney, I give you life in the memory of one who no longer lives. May you have long life and maybe thank Matthew every day for it. From this family trying to move forward, the Matthew Shepard Foundation is created. What's the name of it? The full name? The Matthew Shepard Foundation. Okay. <laughs> I think I, I think I wanted to write down there was an event they were going to that I think was a longer name. But so the Matthew Shepard Foundation was created. Matt's mom, Judy, became a huge advocate and spokesperson. She said, I have this window. I have this window where I can make people listen to me, and I'm going to use it. She created it on December 1st, 1998, on Matt's 22nd birthday. I mean, this was less than two months after he had passed. And they show President Obama giving her a kiss on the cheek and shaking Dad's hand, Dennis, when he signed into law the Matthew Shepard hate crime legislation. Uh, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act. The Hate Crimes Act isn't just gay rights. Right. That's Matthew Shepard, yes. A small part. Mm -hmm. uh, are you familiar with James Byrd Jr.? No, I'm not. Um, James Byrd Jr. was a black man who um, was victim to, to a hate crime. There are, there are specific details, and I don't want to misquote them. But that would be another podcast for sure. It's, it's important. And that sort of just spawned a generation of advocacy. The only sort of end credit bit that they show is, you know, that the Matthew Shepard Foundation was founded on his 22nd birthday and that his brother Logan works there. That has now become his brother's life's work. This story, the whole reason of doing this, uh, when Angela asked me, hey, Brian, I'm going to be doing podcasts. Bobby's given me the reins for the entire month of June. I want to do one with you. Would you feel comfortable? I get nervous. I, I don't really want to talk i feel like it's public speaking even though it's just me and my sister who i've talked to all my <laughs> life but i said yeah there's there is one that i would talk about and when i said matthew shepherd she was like that's exactly what i wanted to do with you it's an important story to me i was 14 years old when this happened i was very much aware of the world i wasn't familiar with all the details and i will admit that things got a little bit clearer with that MTV movie, uh, the Matthew Shepard story. Yeah. Um, when that came on, it sort of made me want to learn more about this. I mean, in 1998, I was dating both a boy and a girl, mm -hmm. and they were both aware of it. Is the fun part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they both knew, and it was just sort of trying to figure out who you are. And then something like this happens, and I didn't live in a necessarily small town. But it's definitely a bunch of small-minded people. And you get scared. You get really scared. And 14 is a very formative age. I keep saying the word formative because that's, that's the only word to describe. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's what makes you a, who you are. 
this is so personal mm-hmm. and so graphic of a situation. You you get scared and fearful and you don't want to tell people about things. And um, the thought of someone outing you makes you fearful for your life when you know that you have the most loving family. And it it's... It's scary as fuck. I've cussed. I'm the only one who's cussed today. I've cussed twice. <laughs> you know? I cussed a lot a minute ago. <laughs> I always well, throw the meth bombs around. Death queen. I mean, you were a freshman in college when this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you familiar with what was going on as it was happening as much? Honestly, no. I feel like I was a bit distracted during that time. Right. But I did know about it. You know, when I was in high school, I had a good friend who wanted to bring a guy, he was a guy, wanted to bring a guy to the prom. Some of the guys in our high school, the high school that you were in, said that if he did, they were going to beat the shit out of him. I mean, I've had to deal with people calling me a faggot before I even knew what gay was. You know, it's not it's not a thing that you really think of, but like that, I mean, I'm talking like, six seven years old yeah you're getting told this word that you don't know uh and of course if you know if there was an internet around at the time which internet existed but not in everybody's home and you know you don't know what that is and you know it's bad so Mm -hmm. it's like that's a bad thing i don't want to be a bad thing right i got called a lesbian when i was seven or eight and It really messed me up for a long time, too, because I didn't understand why they were calling me that and why it was bad. But people are hateful. It was just confusing. It was confusing why someone would say, like, oh, you like girls and you're a terrible person because of it. Or someone who should be shamed. I don't even know if I understood what a lesbian was. But it was Uh, said to me as though it was a terrible thing. Someone from the island of Lesbos. That is literally what a lesbian means. Yeah. There were rumors in high school, too, about me and my best friend. I didn't know until much later that I was bisexual. But looking back, it completely makes sense because of, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes you have confusing friendships when you're a kid. (laughs) And I'm pretty positive that I was in love with all of my best friends and didn't understand the crazy feelings I was having. And I actually (laughs) was in a relationship with my best friend and no one knew. (laughs) <laughs> like, that's right. like, like, how did that even happen? <laughs> like, but it breaks my heart that you felt like you breaks my heart that you felt like you had to hide. But I totally understand because that that's why I brought up the thing about prom is that that was the same high school that you were in, and that was the attitude that there was at that time in 1998 was that if you're gay, we're gonna beat the shit out of you. So he didn't bring a guy to prom. We all went as a group. That was the the place we were in. It was not okay to be different. Uh, the late 90s were rough because of everything that everyone had to deal with in the early 90s and in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Um, they didn't even mention the fact that Matthew Shepard was HIV positive. I had forgotten that. Uh, it's It was found out in his blood work after uh, the fact. Did he know? I don't know if he knew. Yeah. Uh, I guess we can't know if he didn't tell anybody. I mean, you see him and he looks skinny. You know, and a lot of these things. Was. He was always skinny. They said he weighed like 110 pounds. 101 wet. pounds. Yeah, 101 pounds. They said five foot two, 101 pounds. That's why they're like, oh yeah, drugs are plausible. He's little. No, little because he's little. You know, yeah. the protesters outside of his funeral with the the HIV is basically the cure mm-hmm. for being gay. Right. And it's just like, uh, fuck, what is wrong with people? (laughs) Absolutely. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. I will never understand it. And I'm glad I don't understand it. But it breaks my heart. I don't. It's terrible. There were people at his funeral who were sort of leading the charge of like, just ignore these people. Mm -hmm. Just walk past these people. Don't give them your time. The angels are my favorite thing. I actually started crying again when they showed a clip of the angels because if you don't know, there's this group of people called the angels. Is it just the angels? I think so. And they will go to places where there are protests and they will stand between the protesters and the people. And they wear these wings. Well, all white, all the way down. They hold their hands up and it's just like white curtains and you can't see the people behind them. Yep. And it's, it's amazing. 
and they show up wherever they can, when they can, and they do their best to block some of that hate. And it's beautiful. And so, Brian. Angela. We don't rate documentaries in a star rating scale. We rate documentaries in Herzog's. Werner himself. Werner Herzog's little... Little tidbit of information. Yes. Brian makes these icons of the Herzogs, the baby Herzogs, and the Errols. Yeah, if you go to documentary... Hold on. If you go to documenteerspodcast.com. <laughs> if you go to dentures.com. <laughs> if you go to documenteerspodcast.com and click on the episode ratings tab, you will see that we list all the ratings a week after they're posted. And all the little heads that you see there that show how many Herzogs or Errols or baby Herzogs something gets. Brian created all those little images from pictures that Bobby found. So <laughs> you should check it out if you haven't checked it out. I'll go first if you want. This is your first time. Sure. So I really am not going to say very many negative things about this documentary because I really felt that it was done so well. Like I mentioned before, Michelle is someone who is in this documentary, but she is in this documentary because she was Matt's friend. And that's the whole point of this. Matthew Shepard is a friend of mine is because Matthew Shepard was a friend of hers, is a friend of hers. The story was told I think very well. I loved how many home videos they had. I loved the photos that they shared. I love that they read pieces of his journal and letters that really gave you an insight into who he was. I feel like this was a beautiful documentary. I am going to give it a 4.5. From a documentary standpoint, it was narrative. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was true to the beliefs of every single person there you know it wasn't pandering or or catering it was really it was lovely they didn't try to glamorize they just tried to humanize while it was honest and true to these people's perception it was a love letter to matt shepherd it was so there were things that like you brought in some information that they didn't mention in this documentary oh yeah might have made him to some people not be in such a great light like if mm-hmm. he was on drugs or there were other things happening so and that's like a whole sub thing that's going on because there was a book that had this sort of information that they said was just slander so there were some facts that were left out which is truly i think why i did a 4.5 just because i really thought it was lovely what can be perfect it's hard to get a five i feel like but there have been some that just on emotion i think is a five what like everybody that. said Yes. What was actually presented was true to those people. Absolutely. I'm not saying they didn't omit anything. I'm just saying, you know, their stories were their true stories the way that they remember them. You put your whole life out there when that happens. I mean, you have no control over it. I don't want to give it a rating that's going to make it seem bad. You can give it whatever rating feels true to you. Out of five, like, I feel... That it's got to be less than that. I'm, I would actually go with a 4.25. Absolutely. That's totally acceptable. I think 4.25 is good for me. Michelle got me. And the Matt I knew became Matthew Shepard to the world. The priest got me. I would never want to hurt you. <laughs> no, you didn't. Mama Judy got me. They hated whatever they perceived to be different. Daddy got me. World famous traveler again. Now... There he is, saying goodbye. The friends got me. The world was robbed of his uniqueness and the happiness that he would bring. I really appreciate everything that that they did. It is important. It is important. If you don't know this story or if you haven't seen this telling of the story, you should watch it. I would recommend 100% watch this. This is not something that does not happen. This stuff still happens all the time and they make a really good point towards the end of the documentary that a hate crime is as simple as a word you call someone a faggot and that is a hate crime it's not okay it doesn't matter if they robbed him Mm -mm. doesn't matter if they beat him it does matter but in the context of what what kind of crime it is Mm -hmm. they sought out a man they pretended to be gay openly admitted that to gain his trust to rob him then they beat him they called him faggot many times 
they obviously did not approve of him being gay. Otherwise, they wouldn't even have used that. So it's a fucking hate crime. Absolutely. I th- The fact that that was even, that's a huge thing that people feel like I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> it happens. It's just people want to say, oh, that's not a hate crime. That's that's just boys being boys. Or right. that's okay. It's not okay. Your 4.25 plus my 4.5 makes this a 8.75 on the Hertzog scale. Yes, 8.75 Hertzes. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. I know it was not easy to watch. I know it was not easy to talk about. I know this was your first time <laughs> on the podcast and doing something like this. So Bobby's got his work cut out for him. He sure does. All of our sidebars. <laughs> yeah. But I this has meant a lot to me. And I just want to say thank you and I love you. I love you too. Thank you, everyone. And at the end, we always say, keep on docking. I feel like I was a bit distracted during that time. Right. But I did know about it. It's been... One week since you looked at me. Cocked your head to the side and said I'm angry. Michelle got me. The priest got me. Mama Judy got me. Daddy got me. The friends got me. So no one told you that was gonna be this. Okay, we're recording now. All right. Well, like it doesn't mean you can still Fiddle. adjust if you need to. But if I want to pull this down just a little bit. All I'm saying is uh, if you guys do need to leave, just let it record you. Oh yeah, I wasn't gonna stop it. And I was I'll telling actually... him too, like if he needs a break, just let me know. And if we mess up, like, or if I do hit the cord, then just like pause and restart your sentence. Okay. That's what I'm gonna try to do now. But yeah, just let it run, and when you're done, I'll come in and turn it off and save it. Okay. <laughs> Don't even turn it off, and we're done. Uh, you can turn. It off. <laughs> do you trust her, Bobby? He do does you not. Trust her? He does not. <laughs> He's having a real hard time like, letting go. Record this, this now. Yeah, we'll go into sleep mode. <laughs> yeah, I have to like move this. It every doesn't so mean often. it's not recording when it goes into sleep mode. But it is good to pull that cursor off because you could actually hit it. Okay. But just hit the space bar and it'll come back up. But sleep <laughs> mode does not mean it's not recording. Oh, we're going to put some things in here Hi, for I you boss. to listen to later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've already said one of them. <laughs> you guys need my help or anything? Nah. I think we're good. All right. Okay, bye. Love you. Bye. 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 <laughs> It like I feel like it kills him to not be in here. I actually thought he still hadn't closed the door yet. He hasn't. He's still holding the door handle.